Hey guys, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, we wanted to air this special episode as part two of my trip to Charlotte, North Carolina in partnership with Freedom House Church, which was one of the first Turning Point Faith churches and chapters that are raising up godly men and women who care about seeking to influence secular governments for God purposes and to put their faith into all areas of their life, including the public and the political sphere. And Freedom House Charlotte Church had me out on a Sunday morning to preach on abortion and the Kairos turning point for life that the country and the church is in with Roe v. Wade expected to fall this month. And that's something we need to be in prayer for if there was ever anything that we were on our knees for. And they had me back on Tuesday evening for their Freedom Night, which is a regular monthly event that Turning Point Faith churches do to talk about the issues, what's happening in the country, to have special guest speakers and, and panel discussions and Q&A. And so I shared a more applicable sort of get your hands dirty, gird up your loins to engage the culture of death message. And then we had Pastor Troy Maxwell, Pastor Penny Maxwell, and Frank Garcia, who's a good friend of the church, a former NFL player, played for the Carolina Panthers. And we discussed the recent woke transgender ideologies within the NFL and the Carolina Panthers as they were celebrating a transgender cheerleader, quote unquote, that week while I was out there. And so we talk about the culture of death. We talk about the case for life. We talk about the strange heretical ideologies that are the same behind abortion and behind transgenderism to remove the spiritual blinders or political blinders on the eyes of the church and wake them up and equip them to stand in a day. I hope this exciting event that was nearly packed to the brim will fire you up, excite you, and send you out more encouraged, optimistic, and equipped to engage the culture of death at such a decisive moment. Buckle up, you're in for a treat. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. <laughs> You can go ahead and be seated. My name is Troy Maxwell. My wife and I are the senior pastors of Freedom House Church, and I just want to again welcome you to one of our Freedom Nights. Fan, give it up again for Jonathan. And if you're a part of the Love Life team, would you stand up? Because I know we have several people from the Love Life team. Listen afterwards. If you have any questions, um, make sure you go and talk to them. I'm sure they have a website. It's probably lovelife.com or .org or something like that. So make sure you check it out. Um, I've known of their organization for the last probably 12 years. I don't know how long they've been in existence. How long have you guys been going? You're six. So for some reason, maybe it's just because of Andre that I know him because he's been around for a long time. And so, uh, so six years, I've known about everything that they've been doing. It's very, very, I'm excited that we as a church get to partner with them. And at this, you know, it's, it's a really important time right now, guys. You know, I think that what um, Acts 17, 26 says, that, we, that there's a certain time in history, I think we are a part of that. It's pretty interesting to think that God puts you and I on the planet right now for the overturning of this, this epic moment, Roe versus Wade. And so I want us to understand, before I have Seth come up, and I'll introduce him in just a second, is there's more to this than just having it overturned. Because um, we as the church need to step up. You as a business person in the marketplace, there's gonna be involvement for you. 
It's not just one and done. We're finished. Like, it's over with. Everything's going to change. You know, Jesus is coming back. It's not going to happen like that. No, we actually have a job to do where we can welcome people, no matter what church. Maybe you're not a part of Freedom House Church. Um, encourage your church to be welcoming to people who've made mistakes, who got pregnant before marriage. Instead of us shunning the pregnant women, uh, the families, we need to invite them in and, and help them through the process. Because what they're carrying is not a mistake, okay? They may have sinned, and there's a consequence to it, which means you have now have a life you have to take care of, and we as the church family need to surround them and help them through this process, no matter how old they are. Does that make sense? And so this is going to raise our awareness, number one, but also raise uh, the opportunity level for us to step in as the church and, and see what this is all going to look like and how it's going to affect us. I'm so thankful um, for, for Love Life. I'm also thankful for Seth. Seth uh, Gruber, who has a uh, young man, is traveling all over the nation, uh, was introduced to us through Charlie Kirk, which is what TPUSA is all about. And that's what, why we do what we do, is he challenged us. I was sitting at a table, Penny and I, at a table in Arizona. Um, gosh, it was right in the middle of the pandemic. And he said, Troy, Penny, I'm starting TP Faith, and I want you and your church to be one of the first churches to step out and do this. And I was like, yes. Before we even finished, I was like, yes. Like, we need to do this. Because honestly, churches have been living in the middle way too long. And you can't live in the middle. And you're not called to live in the middle. You have to pick a side. That's your job. You have to pick a side. And I'm not talking about Republican or Democrat. I'm, talk I'm talking about truth or a lie. That's the side you have to pick. And so I'm very thankful that God is raising up prophetic voices all over the nation, like Charlie, like Candace, like Seth, to speak truth. It's a little abrasive sometimes. Sometimes the truth hurts a little bit. Come on, you remember when your mom told you things, your dad told you stuff, and you're like, that? I don't like that. I'm doing it on the inside, but I'm not doing it on the outside. You know, I'm just, I'm just, it hurts a little bit. And so God is correcting, he's adjusting the church, and he's using men and women to come in and really challenge us in our life. And so I'm thankful that, that Seth is a voice for the unborn. He's, making, he's a very smart guy, honestly, talks way too fast, <laughs> way too fast for me. My wife talks fast. He talks way faster than my wife. I've gotten to know him over the last few days. This is our first kind of interaction together um, but I'm excited for him to come. We're gonna talk for a little bit. He's gonna talk for a little bit, and then we're gonna come do a Q&A um, and talk about some other things that are going on in Charlotte specific that we need to be a little angry about with our sports team and what's going on there. And so um, I have a friend that's here that's gonna talk about that as well. So can you stand up on your feet and give Seth Gruber a big welcome, TP Faith, welcome. Come on, give it up for Seth. Good evening, you guys are beautiful, all you former fetuses, all you energetic embryos. You know, it's, it's so funny how uh, much we've been being told in the last season to follow the science 
And I made this point in my sermon at Freedom House on Sunday if you weren't there. And I think it bears repeating as I share some comments with you, maybe guide our way a little bit through the philosophies of personhood and the arguments offered in defense of abortion so you can be pro-life ninjas. But I think it bears repeating that science is now a meaningless term in the lexicon of the left. Science is a meaningless term. I'd like to ban the term follow the science from American political discourse because everyone who uses that phrase to justify the last two years of COVID tyranny is pro-abortion, which is absolutely hilarious, ironic. It's things you couldn't even make up. And they all believe that men can be women and women can be men and you should lop off the genitalia of eight-year-olds if they identify as the other gender. That doesn't sound very scientific to me. It sounds like a very dangerous philosophical view of personhood that you have that's a very ancient view of the human person, and you're slapping the sticker of science over your philosophical bigotry to disguise your true agenda and keep the American public confused. Because, oh, you're too stupid to weed your way through the science and understand everything that's happening. And so we kind of dove more into the scriptures on Sunday, um, but all truth is God's truth. And so God's truth is true wherever it's found, even if it's not found in the pages of Scripture. And so I want to dive a little bit into the science. I want to make the case for life for this reason. I want you to gird up your loins. I want to give you intellectual tools to engage this out-of-control culture of death. Because we're starting to realize that the culture wars were always just a proxy war for the spiritual war. And yet, how many times have pastors said, uh, we just preach the gospel, we don't do politics, we just do Jesus. Well, Satan was like, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for folding and flinching at the one point that you were needed the most to defeat me so that I can deceive the sheep and lead them astray under the veneer of it's just politics. And the Johnson Amendment, the separation of church and state, has wrecked havoc in this country as the church and the shepherds who ought to be protecting the sheep and sometimes taking a pole and whacking wolves on the top of the head, let them into the sheepfold because they're masquerading under the veneer of politics. We understand this is a biblical and spiritual issue, but it's also a political issue because it's been legalized. And so if you want to protect the unborn, who is the only class of neighbors that is legal to kill, then you have to work through politics to restore the protection of their right to life, the first and most fundamental of all rights. So what is the science? If you missed the Sunday's message, we'll actually dive even a little bit deeper than we did on Sunday. So hopefully this will be helpful for you. The science of embryology, the study of the embryo, has been uh, pretty exhaustive and comprehensive for some decades now. In fact, let me prove it to you. There's a California medicine journal. It's called California Medicine. That's my home state. It's where I'm from, okay? In 1970, a journal that favors abortion admitted that we all really know that human life begins at conception. So when people tell you in, in the pro-abortion movement, have you ever heard this? No one really knows when life begins. You've all heard that one, right? Or, or AOC just said on uh, TikTok or whatever, Instagram, uh, you know, some religions disagree on when human life begins. You know, the Jews, they, they don't believe that, that that life is really a life at conception, and so why can't they have abortions, right? So she's appealing to this perception that we don't actually know, or that because there's a lack of consensus, there must be a lack of truth. 
But we know how silly that is to say because there was also a lack of consensus regarding the personhood and rights of our black brothers and sisters in 1850. But no one would say, well, there was a lack of truth because we couldn't agree. So we actually know. So California Medicine in 1970, this is just a damning critique against the culture of death because I'm about to show you that they've always known it was a human and that they always knew they were killing babies. Remember, Roe versus Wade in 1973. I'm going three years before. California Medicine, a pro-abortion journal. Here's what they said. Since the old ethic has not yet been fully displaced. What was that old ethic? The Judeo-Christian ethic that said you had rights simply because you were created in the image of God. Since that old ethic has not yet been fully displaced, it has been necessary to separate the idea of abortion from the idea of killing, which continues to be socially abhorrent. The result has been a curious avoidance of the scientific fact, which everyone really knows, that human life begins at conception and is continuous, whether intra or extra uterine until death. The very considerable semantic gymnastics that are required to rationalize abortion as anything but taking a human life would be ludicrous if they were not often put forth under socially impeccable auspices. It is suggested that this schizophrenic sort of subterfuge is necessary because while a new ethic is being accepted, that old one has not yet been rejected. California Medicine, 1970. Dr. Warren Hearn, who wrote a textbook called Abortion Practice. It's the leading medical textbook that teaches new doctors how to kill babies in abortion. And here's what he said in his textbook, Abortion Practice. I'm sorry, he said it at a Planned Parenthood conference shortly after he wrote his book. He said, we have reached a point in this particular technology where there is no possibility of denying an act of destruction by the operator. It is before one's eyes. The sensations of dismemberment flow through the forcep like an electric current. What about Camille Paglia, a pro-abortion professor at the University of Arts in Philadelphia and a quite popular pro-abortion voice? Here's what she said in a Salon.com article, never read that journal, in 2008. She said, hence, I have always frankly admitted that abortion is murder, the extermination of the powerless by the powerful. Liberals, for the most part, have shrunk from facing the ethical consequences of their embrace of abortion, which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not just clumps, not just clumps of insensate tissue. Oh, thank you for that. Last one, Naomi Wolf. Anyone know that name? Interesting, she kind of got red-pilled recently. She's all coming out in support of bodily autonomy against COVID vaccine mandates. So she's now sort of streaming up the streams of liberty with us. So I hope she gets back to its source, Christ himself, and becomes pro-life and meets the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the greatest former fetus to have ever existed. But Naomi Wolf once made a very interesting line, kind of directed at pro-aborts, saying, you guys need to be more honest and just admit it's a baby. Here's what she said. She said, clinging to a rhetoric about abortion in which there is no life and no death, we entangle our beliefs in a series of self-delusions, fibs, and evasions. And we risk becoming precisely what our critics charge us with being, callous, selfish, 
and casually destructive men and women who share a cheapened view of human life. So, Naomi Wolf says, we need to contextualize the fight to defend abortion rights within a moral framework that admits that the death of the baby is a real death. Okay, was that fun? What's my point? They all know they're killing babies and they all know they're human beings and they don't care. So, how do they pull this off then? If they know it's a human and the science is so clear and they know that from conception you were a distinct because the body and her body's not her body, living, because you were growing, and whole, because you had everything you needed at conception to realize your full growth and development. If they know that that's all true, how do they attempt to justify abortion? The same arguments that racists use to defend slavery and Nazis use to defend the Holocaust and every elitist totalitarian who saw himself as God and had a political or social or financial incentive to dehumanize a certain class of human beings. If you push, you can usually get pro-aborts today to admit that the unborn child is obviously a human being. The old talking points from the 70s and 80s about like, it's a parasite or something stupid, or it's like it's not a human, they don't really use those talking points anymore. Do you know what they say? Okay, I guess it's a human, but it's not a person. I've heard that one before. Not all, so not all humans are persons. By the way, anytime someone tells you the unborn child is a human but not a person, I'm gonna give you two questions, like ideological pistols to wield. You ready? Here's the first question. What's the difference between a human and a person? Any difference they give you between the baby in the womb and the human outside the womb will be a difference shared amongst all born people as well. So the argument for abortion cannot be confined to the womb. Those arguments work equally well to justify killing born people. And I'll dive into that. Here's the second question to ask them. Have you ever met a human that's not a person? Because I haven't, and I would be fascinated to meet one. Like, do you have a, like, a photo album on your iPhone called Human Non-Persons? Like, what does one look like? Well, unfortunately, brothers and sisters, they would probably take you in a time machine with Marty McFly back to 1850 America. Oh, right, right. When the same political party believed the same thing about a different victim class, that they were humans but not persons. So how do they attempt to pull this off? How do they attempt to pull this off? By creating a litmus test for personhood. And if you don't check these functional, cognitive ability, accidental property checkboxes, you may be a human, but you're not a person. Now, of course, you and I use those terms synonymously. Human person, person human. Pastor Troy, Pastor Penny, they're human beings and they're some of my favorite persons. See, I just did it, I use those terms interchangeably. The culture of death must rip the term human from person apart. And that's what they've always done before they implemented genocide. Now, did racists really believe that African Americans were not biologically human? By the way, I hate that term, biological human, because now we're using it in transgenderism. It's a biological male, as opposed to a non-biological male. And I, like, <laughs> just call it a dude, okay? But they, they do that, yeah. So sometimes you have to specify, but they, did they actually believe that blacks were not human beings, like homo sapiens? No, they didn't believe that. They said they weren't persons. So what were some of the arguments for slavery? 
Well, it was based on uh, skin color and intellect. Those, if you kind of study some of the racist arguments in support of slavery. By the way, go check out the Lincoln-Douglas debates. We have the transcripts from when Abraham Lincoln was debating Stephen Douglas. Fascinating. Stephen Douglas, by the way, was personally opposed to abortion. So if you hear squishy pro-lifers say, I want Roe v. Wade overturned, and I just want the states to decide, you should say, hmm, nice to meet you, Stephen Douglas. Because in his debates with Abraham Lincoln, Stephen Douglas said, quote, I support the right of each state to vote it up or down. Does anyone think that it's just for one state to lynch black people and another to protect them? No, because we understand that you cannot be deprived of life, liberty, and property without due process of law, that those are natural rights that spring from your human nature. And we had those rights from the moment we became a human being. Pretty simple. The unborn child is a human being from the moment of conception. Therefore, it's not just to merely send Roe v. Wade back to the states and then just allow New York and California to continue slaughtering millions of babies while babies in South Dakota and South Carolina and uh, Idaho are more relatively safe. There's no justice in that. Okay. But what are the arguments? Well, Abraham Lincoln, the first OG conservative troll, <laughs> speaking in rhetoric that soars above most of today's politicians, certainly Joe Biden, <laughs> spoke to the arguments from racists and how those arguments put in place the premises that would justify the white man's own enslavement. Huh? So Lincoln has this fragment of paper that we have today. I forget which museum it's at. I'll get that information to you. It's called Fragments on Slavery. And he wrote this in 1854. And he would utilize this reasoning in the 1858-1859 debates with Stephen Douglas. Fascinating. Here's what Lincoln said. He said, you say A is white and B is black. It is color then. The lighter having the right to enslave the darker. Take care. By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with a skin fairer than your own. Oops. <laughs> Lincoln continues. He says, but you say it is a question of intellect. You say that the white man is intellectually the superior of the black and therefore has the right to enslave him? Take care again. <laughs> By this rule, you were to be a slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. But, say you, it is a question of interest. And if you can make it in your interest, you have the right to enslave another. Very well. And if he can make it in his interest, he has the right to enslave you. What is Lincoln teaching us? That when you ground rights on things that come in varying degrees, it follows, therefore, that rights come in varying degrees. So then the albino rules over all, <laughs> for he has the palest of skin. And all of us Caucasians who run a little swarthy would be slightly less of a person than the albino with slightly less rights therein, do you see? Therefore, the person with the highest IQ would be emperor. And anyone with the IQ, just one or two points below his, would be somewhat less of a person with somewhat less rights than that man. It's only by grounding rights on the only thing we have in common that you can ensure this idea of human equality. And isn't it interesting that what arguments does the left use to argue for abortion rights? They use the language of equality, <laughs> women's equality. They've shifted now, and they're making personhood arguments and others. But the early arguments from the sexual revolution leading into Roe versus Wade was this. 
women need abortion to be equal with men. The arguments in the Cosmopolitan, which really like reigned in the sexual revolution, the Cosmopolitan was sex in the city in written form for the 60s. You need to understand this, okay? The arguments being made were that women have these pesky things called uteruses that prevent them from achieving the same level of success in corporate America. So to be truly equal with men, women need abortion. They're using the language of equality. The very equality that they're seeking cannot be secured through their own worldview. They cut off the branch that they're standing on because they ground rights in things we don't have in common. Look around the room. Look at one another. If you're here with a girl and you want to ask her out, this is your opportunity right now. Look at one another and ask yourself the question, what do we have in common? Do we have gender in common? Skin color? Ethnicity? IQ? Musical ability? Physical abilities? Height? No, we don't have any of these things in common. What's the only thing we have in common? We're human beings. We were human beings from the moment of conception. Oh, but Seth, what makes humans so exceptional? We're not really any more valuable than cows or flowers or trees or bugs. And this is what the culture says to the church today. Why do you think you're so special? And it's funny, while they say that, not even PETA is showing up outside of In-N-Out drive throughs calling for cow genocide. Because deep down, we kind of just know. This is why our founders used the term, it's called self-evident. For Gen Zers today, you could say, we hold these truths to be that all human beings are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Axiomatic, self-evident truths are ones that don't need defending. They're obviously true. Because how can you then argue for your own right to speak, your own right to not be dismembered? They're, they're assumed natural rights that flow from a human nature. And of course, from a Christian worldview, we would say it's because we bear the imago Dei, the image of the greatest former fetus to have ever existed, who entered human history in a uterus to redeem mankind from their sins, who breathed out the freaking Milky Way, laughed animals into existence, dropped oceans, and then made you as the peak and pinnacle of his creation more valuable than anything else he had made and therefore gives us dominance, dominion over the creation he has made to be stewards of. When he looks at you, he says, you look just like me. So that's what makes us exceptional over other creatures, but even the secular society who may not acknowledge the existence or authority of God understands this as well. That's why they have no problem chopping down trees, burning firewood, and eating it in and out but we don't think that we should be able to eat Harold burgers because Harold is a person with dignity and rights. So what is the new woke litmus test for personhood, right? If it was skin color and intellect with slavery, if it was religion and appearance in the Holocaust, then what's the new woke litmus test that the culture of death demands the unborn must meet or check before they have rights. There are four, and they're summarized in the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D, SLED. Now, I live in Southern California. I was raised in LA County. I can't even spell the word snow, but work with me. Picture a SLED, S-L-E-D. This stands for the four differences between the embryonic human being that you once were and the adult that you are today. And none of those differences justify killing you in the womb. So, what are the differences? Size. S, size. Yes, the unborn child is smaller than the newborn child. Derp. But newborn children are smaller than toddlers, and toddlers are smaller than teenagers. Men are generally larger than women, but that doesn't mean that Shaquille O'Neal has any more rights than Barbara Streisand. 
And yet, what does the culture of death say? Oh, you mean that tiny little thing you can't even see, that mass of cells at four weeks? How could that be a person with right? Well, it's, well, it's a human. We know it's a human, so you're just discriminating based on size. But none of us have size in common, but we do have a human nature in common, which we had from the moment we became human, which was the moment of conception. L, level of development. Yes, it's true, the unborn child is less developed than the newborn child. And newborn children are less developed than toddlers, and toddlers are less developed than teenagers. Our grandparents are more developed than all of us. But nobody thinks that grandpa should be able to kill baby Timmy because grandpa's more developed. In fact, wait, the difference in development between toddler Timmy and grandpa is a greater difference than the difference in development between embryonic Timmy and toddler Timmy. So we all find ourselves on a different tick mark on the continuum of human development. But when did the continuum of human development begin? The moment of conception. But they focus on level of development because they say that there are certain developmental functional markers that will evidence themselves as you grow in the womb and that there is something about those markers and functions that are decisive, or we would say value-giving. There's something about those functions that they assume, they don't argue for, they assume give, gives one value. By the way, C.S. Lewis once said, the most dangerous ideas in a society are not the ones being argued for. They're the ones being assumed. And you know what happens when you assume, right? You make a, yeah, okay, all right, good. So what developmental markers in the level of development do they say are value giving? Okay, self-awareness. Ever heard that one? Uh, the baby doesn't know they're being aborted. <laughs> What's it to them? They don't even know. They're not even self-aware. Did you know the most recent science has suggested that infants are not self-aware until months after birth? So I have three kids, two outside the womb, one in the womb. When my wife held our cute daughter Annie in the mirror and takes you know, the selfies and sends them to me when I'm traveling, you know, she has a cute outfit and a little bonnet. You know, is, is my baby Annie going, oh my gosh, I, I am adorable. Thank you, mom, for the cute outfit. I'm aware of myself as an autonomous individual who, will never exist who has never existed before and will never exist again. Good style matching, mom. No, my daughter Annie at that point was not self-aware. But you can get a pro-choicer to say infanticide is wrong. But on what basis could they say that infanticide is wrong? Because the same self-awareness they're saying grants the unborn rights or lack thereof, which doesn't grant them rights, is also missing in the infant. Okay, here's another one. Uh, desires. Now, this one you'll hear more on college campuses from, from woke professors who think they're very smart. You won't maybe hear this on the street level, but it's becoming more popular, so let me inoculate you against this argument. <laughs> They'll say something like this, or immunize you, right? <laughs> let me give you a philosophical jab against this argument. I won't mandate it, I won't mandate it, it's okay. <laughs> so they say that if you don't have desires, you don't have rights. So if you don't have a desire for a thing, you don't have a right for that thing. So for example, they'll say the unborn child doesn't desire a right to life. They don't desire to go on living because they're not aware of that desire and they don't have it yet and so therefore, I haven't violated your rights if I haven't violated your desire for that right. It's kind of weird, okay? But they say, well, the unborn child doesn't have a desire to go on living, therefore we can kill them. Well, again, well, neither do infants, okay? Also, if desires grant you rights, then what are we to do with people with suicidal tendencies? Do they desire to go on living? 
No, that's what makes you suicidally tendent. Okay, so hey, ProChoicer, can we round up all the people with suicidal tendencies, which, by the way, we are, we're seeing rates like we've never seen before with suicidal tendencies, thanks to the Democrat Party that shut down the country, forced children inside, ruined their relationships and friendships with others. I digress. Let's round them all up and kill them, right, ProChoicer? Because they don't have a desire to go on living. And they go, uh, humana, 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 humana. That's not the same. Why is it not the same? Like the preborn child, they don't have a desire to go on living. One more example. Buddhists, what do Buddhists try to reach? Nirvana. What is nirvana? The eradication of all desires. Now, I'm not convinced this is possible, but let's say it was, and you eradicated all desires. You would have also eradicated the desire to go on living or the desire for a right to life. Therefore, let's round up all the Buddhists, right, pro-choicer, who have reached nirvana, and let's lynch them because they're not persons like the baby in the womb who has no desire to go on living. And they go, do you see? The argument for abortion cannot be confined to the womb. Those same arguments work to justify killing born people as well. Here's another uh, argument. Have you ever heard the one, oh, the baby can't feel pain? So what's it to them? Actually, Maureen Condick, who's an expert, expert in, in neural fetal pain, testified before Congress in a subcommittee hearing a few years ago, I think in 2007, 2008, and she said that actually the baby has all of the thalamic circuitry in place to experience pain at some degree by as early as eight and a half weeks. So they, they might not feel the full range of human pain, but they feel something. But no pro-choicer will say, I'm, I, I'll join you in banning abortions after eight and a half weeks. So they're just using the ability to feel pain to disguise their true agenda and argument, which is abortion through point of birth. Okay, but very well. Anyone familiar with the, the uh, condition known as congenital analgesia or congenital insensitivity to pain? A condition in which you cannot feel any pain. It's very rare, but some people have it. Hey, pro-choicer, can we kill those people? Because like the preborn child, they can't feel any pain, and they say no. Do you see, do you see, I mean, every argument for abortion also works to defend killing born people, but they're arguing on that L, that level of development. Because the baby's not developed, they can't feel pain, or they don't have certain functions that I assume are value-giving at that stage of development, they're not a person, but they never explain why the possession of those functions and cognitive abilities are value-giving in the first place. We could go into more, maybe we'll get to do it into Q&A. E, environment, or location. Yes, the baby is located in a very unique environment. It's called a womb. By the way, we're all former womb dwellers. That's where we all came from. And as Ronald Reagan once said, I've noticed everyone who's for abortion has already been born. So it's very ironic that pro-choicers sanction the slaughter of children in a womb they once came from. I've always thought being pro-choice always entailed a certain level of self-hatred, don't you? It's weird. It's weird. You're saying, yeah, <laughs> when I was in my mother's womb, I was a non-person. And had my mother killed me or paid a hitman to do it, it would have been reproductive health care. I always want to be like, why did you hate your prenatal self so much? Like, that was still you. Like, so it's always, it's very strange. But yes, the baby is located in a very unique environment. The womb has become the most dangerous place for a human being to find themselves in America today. You are far more likely of being killed in the womb than you are residing or living in any dangerous city or crime-ridden slum and it was created to be the environment that you were protected and valued. By the way, not only is abortion the leading cause of death, it is the most dangerous place for a black baby to find themselves. You need to know this, Planned Parenthood lynches more unarmed black lives in the womb every two weeks than the KKK lynched in a century. I didn't say the abortion industry, I said just Planned Parenthood. Only that organization alone performs 
and kills more on our black lives every 14 days than the KKK lynched from trees in 100 years. So the next time that organization tells you, black lives matter, just know that they're actually the greatest danger to black lives in America today. But as the philosopher Frank Beckwith says, where one is has no bearing on who one is. How is it that a six-inch journey through the birth canal in childbirth transforms you from an insensate blob of non-person tissue with no rights to a baby with a right to life? Oh, you don't know the answer? Okay, it's the fetus fairy. <laughs> Bear with me. I know, I know you're not woke, so I'm gonna wokeify you and explain to you the wonderful fantasies of secular progressivism la-la land. There is a fetus fairy, and he flies up. Well, it's, it's a non-binary uh, fairy, but it flies up as the baby is being born, and it sprinkles, they, they, them. I am so sorry for my cisgender transphobia. I apologize, I rent my garments. Okay, so the fairy flies up and sprinkles magical personhood-conferring fairy dust on the baby as it exits the birth canal. So it is a magical birth canal. And when that baby, when the last toe exits the vaginal canal, the doctor goes, oh my gosh, it's a person. Now, we all know how stupid this is because babies can now be born as early as 21 weeks and survive and the hospital will work heroically to save that baby's life. But babies in the separate wings of some of the same hospitals will rip a child limb from limb at 30 weeks, at 32 weeks, at 35 weeks, a full 10 weeks older than the baby in the other wing of the hospital who the nurses are working heroically to save because the young baby was wanted by their parents and the older baby was not wanted by their parents and therefore they have no rights. Unwanted. The Nazis had a term for that. It was called undesirables. The Nazis had a term for that. It was called Leben unwertensleben, life unworthy of life. History repeats itself. The last difference between the embryonic person you once were and the adult you are today is your degree of dependency. Is the baby dependent on the mother to continue living? Yeah. And in the first trimester and early second trimester, that baby cannot survive apart from their dependency on their mother. But the viability line, the dependency line is constantly changing. So when Roe v. Wade and Doe versus Bolton, its companion case was passed in 1973, they said viability, which means the ability to survive outside the womb and, and not need your mother's body, was 26 weeks. And then they said it was 24 weeks. And now the earliest baby to have been born and survived and is one and a half years old was born at 21 weeks in one day. What's full gestation? 40 weeks. We've almost cut it in half. So wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. So Roe versus Wade said states could not pass abortions, could not ban abortion, before fetal viability, but they could ban abortions after fetal viability because they recognized, I guess, some dignity and rights attached to the baby when they could survive outside the womb. But so, whoa, whoa, whoa. how does your right to life change and drift based off of whether scientists have invented new ways to make babies viable at earlier stages? Surely your rights can't be dependent on the ideas that scientists come up with and the technology to make babies viable at earlier and earlier stages. By the way, a baby at 23 weeks is not viable in areas of Africa. 
because mom doesn't have access to the type of technologies that babies in America do. So what happens to a mom who's pregnant at 24 weeks and she flies out of Reagan Airport in D.C. where her baby's viable, when she enters African airspace, does her baby no longer have a right to life because it's not viable? This is a strange world because we recognize that your rights are not dependent on whether you're dependent on someone or something else. They're dependent on your human nature, which you had at the moment of conception. So if we can kill babies simply because they need their mother's body and they're dependent on her, can we kill born people who are dependent on heart pacemakers, kidney machines, insulin, life support, or caretakers who, like the baby in the womb, are dependent on someone or something else without which they cannot continue to live? This is called eugenics the slow and deliberate elimination of those that our society deems unfit to live because they pose too great of a burden. Size, level of development, environment, and dependency. The only differences between the unborn human you once were and the born human you are today, and none of those differences are relevant to your right to life. So you didn't come from an embryo and then transform into something else. You once were an embryo. Zygote, embryo, fetus, infant, toddler, teenager. Different terms that describe the same human being at different stages in their physical development. <clears throat> Do you feel like a pro-life ninja now? Yeah. <clears throat> As we wind down, I would encourage you to subscribe to my podcast. I learned this from Charlie Kirk. It's a little bit of a self-plug. But if you take it out and you hit five stars and you subscribe, it blows it up. It shows up higher on the charts in related content. People listen to it. I've gotten reviews of people saying that they started sidewalk counseling a week or two after listening to the podcast and have saved babies because they were inspired by the podcast. So it's not just a self-plug. If you rate it and you subscribe, you could actually save a baby or inspire someone to do the same. I want to close with this story. It's a story of a man who put it all on the line to love his Jewish neighbors. And it's a story that we need to reclaim in the church today for a new class of victims and neighbors who are dehumanized and discriminated against. This man was a very wealthy entrepreneur and businessman in Nazi Germany. In fact, he was a member of the Nazi party. And he wore a golden pin on his jacket that identified him as such. His name was Oskar Schindler. And if you've seen or read the book or the film Schindler's List, I'm afraid this is a little bit of a spoiler, but bear with me. Oscar Schindler began to become horrified at the atrocities being committed against his Jewish neighbors. And so do you know what he did? He began to exhaust his great net worth and wealth to buy Jews off of the Nazi death camp lists and employ them in his factories to hide them from the Nazis. It's estimated that at the end of the war, Oskar Schindler had saved over 1,000 Jews from a Holocaust bent on their destruction and elimination. If you've seen the film, at the very end, Oskar Schindler is standing surrounded by hundreds of brothers and sisters who owe him their very lives. And then the announcement rings out that the Allied troops have won. We're victorious! And all of his Jewish friends begin to celebrate. This is what they've been waiting for. They can now rest in somewhat 
security and peace. And as the announcement rings out and his friends begin to leap and celebrate and rush and hug him, Oscar Schindler stands in the middle of them and he begins to weep. And one of his best friends looks at him and he says, my brother, what is wrong? And through tears down his face, Oscar Schindler says, I, I could have saved one more. And his friend, who was famous for saying, he who saves one life saves the world entire, looks at Schindler and he says, no, 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 no. <laughs> We're here because of you. And Schindler looks at the golden pin on his jacket, which identifies him as a member of the Nazi party, and he says, my pin? Why did I keep this? I could have sold this and saved two more. Then he looks at his fancy car, one of the last items that he can call his, and he says, my car, my car. Why did I keep this? I could have sold that and saved ten more. At least five more. I could have saved one more. This coming from a man who went to the wall to love his neighbor, who's broke at the end of a Holocaust because he gave it all away. He traded wealth in exchange for lives. The question that echoes from Schindler's time to our time today is a simple one, brothers and sisters. That question is, do we take our Holocaust in 2022? as seriously as Oscar Schindler took his. Because if we do, if we truly do, then I don't want you to miss out on the Kairos turning point that the country and the church is in right now, to tear down the high places of Moloch and give God a reason to show us mercy. He will not rent the heavens and pour out his spirit on this land as long as we continue to sacrifice his children to pagan deities. And brothers and sisters, if you say, but Seth, that's not me. I'm a Christian. I've always been pro-life. I've never had an abortion. I used to tell myself that too until I read Leviticus 19 where God is addressing the Israelites for their complicity in child sacrifice. And God says, if any of you sacrifice your children to Moloch or if any of you do turn your face from that man, when he sacrifices one of his children to Moloch, then I will cut you off from among the people, you and all of you who follow after him in whoring yourselves after Moloch. Go read it. Leviticus. And then there's Proverbs 24, 11. Hold back those staggering toward the slaughter. And if you say, but we did not know about this God. Proverbs 24, 12 says, does not he who made your life see it? Does not he who formed your heart see it? And will he not judge man according to what he has done? Meaning, I knew you knew. We can no longer say that we did not know. Francis Schaeffer, the cultural prophet and evangelist, said that if the church can't speak up against something as evil as killing a baby, then the world has the right to ask whether Christ is real. This is the turning point the church right now. Rather than abdicating and being silent on abortion and justifying our silence as a strategy to remain relevant in the culture, it's actually the other way around. When you stand unapologetically for life, it's a fragrant incense to the culture because truth is fragrant. Truth draws people and the truth will set you free. So let me finish with this. 
What do we have to lose? And what might happen if we don't act? What will happen if we capitulate once again and we fold? And we are like the Levite and the priest who walk by on the other side of the road where there's a bleeding victim because we're under the tyranny of the urgent and we're doing more spiritual things. We will become dead inside. If we continue in our apathy and tolerance of evil, we will become dead inside. Ever read screw tape letters? Screw tape talks to nephew Wormwood. One of the most powerful lines in the book is when Screwtape is talking to Wormwood about how to keep the Christians in the position of believing all the right things and never acting on them. And here's what Screwtape tells Wormwood. He says, as the humans have said, active habits are strengthened by repetition, but passive ones are weakened. The longer he, the Christian, feels without acting, the less he will be able ever to act. And in the long run, the less he will be able to feel it all. Bonhoeffer once said that only in action is freedom because then you can be the same consistent person wherever you go, unapologetic about the truth you espouse. The longer we feel passionately pro-life and do nothing about it, Satan says, wonderful, amen, thank you, keep your liturgy in the church, espouse all the right beliefs, but never act on them, because the longer you do that, the sooner you'll become dead inside, you'll never act at all against what I'm doing, and the longer you remain in that position, the sooner you won't even feel broken about the broken world around you. The second thing we have to lose by doing nothing is that we or our posterity will be killed. That's all. Or to quote Martin Niemöller, a member of Bonhoeffer's Confessing Church, who was initially a little bit of an anti-Semite and repented and survived a concentration camp, famously said after the war that first they came for the socialists. And I didn't speak up because I wasn't a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists. And I did not speak up because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews. I did not speak up because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me. And there was no one left to speak up for me. Or as Mildred Jefferson, the woman who turned Reagan pro-life once said, today it is the unborn child. Tomorrow it is likely to be the elderly or those who are incurably ill. Who knows? but that a little later, it may be anyone who has political and moral views that do not fit into the new distorted order. Does that feel like 2022 right now? This is the Kairos moment for the church. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Or one day you will spend your sunset years telling your children and your children's children what it once was like to live in the United States where men were free. Ronald Reagan, I'll see you on the battlefield. Go out there and give them heaven. For Seth. Come on, let's give it up him. I'm going to invite Pastor Troy, Seth, Pastor Penny, and Frank up. Yeah, we're going to have a... Wasn't that great? Fantastic. Thank you so much. Can I get a mic on? Yeah, hey, um, we're going to have some questions real quick. I'm not going to keep you very long. Uh, go ahead and have a seat. Uh, we're just going to take maybe 10, 15 minutes. Uh, I have a great friend who's with us who comes to our South End campus. Frank Garcia is with us. He's uh, six-year, uh, played for the Carolina Panthers, 
nine years in the NFL. I want him to come up here as well. Uh, why don't you sit right here, Frank? We need one more chair. One more time, get up for Seth. Wow, that was amazing. Told you he talked fast. That's like, that's like eight sermons in one. That's like eight messages in one. They, you know, they told us that they call you uh, the Christian Ben Shapiro. That's right. Oh, boy. That's right. I think he's talked faster than Ben Shapiro, actually. Um, um, we're going to have a QR code. Tell yes, so uh, we're about to hop into some Q&A. What you can do right now is you can scan this QR code and you can submit your questions. And so while you're submitting your questions, Pastor Troy is going to start us off asking some questions uh, about everything that's going on in our culture right now. But anything, anything you want to ask, scan the QR code, type it in. We'll see if we can get to it. Hopefully we can get to everyone's questions, but that's yeah, it. I know it's, it's 830. I don't want to take a whole lot of time, but I think this is important. Um, they say keep going. Yeah, good. <laughs> so, because um, I, I want I want to include Frank and uh, I want to talk about this, but Seth, I want you to talk real quickly about what we talked in the back. Um, obviously, or maybe not obviously, this week has been a challenging week for Carolina because of the liberal Carolina Panther Pride logo that came out, and then before that we saw in the NFL the first transgender cheerleader wow. um, that all came out. And I think it's interesting that it's, all, that it's really one issue, yeah. abortion, the transgender right. issue, yep. LGBTQIAFG, yeah, yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, thank you, Pastor Troy. And it really is the same worldview that undergirds transgender, transgenderism as undergirds um, abortion. But first, I want to start with this quick opening comment, then I'll bridge it because I, I think you're really going to want to hear from Frank here. And we got to know each other a little bit back in the green room. Um, Satan can only invert and copycat. Yeah. Satan has no original ideas of his own. All he can do is copy God and then invert and pervert everything that he sees. And so we see this with abortion, for example, right? Because abortion says, you must die so I can live, but Christ says, no, I must die so you can live, right? That abortion is this sacrament of secular progressivism that calls for the shedding of blood in order to pursue eternal life and peace in mankind. Christ pours out his blood for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life and to bring peace. The Catholic philosopher Peter Kraft put this perfectly when he said, abortion is the demonic parody inversion of the Eucharist. That's why it uses the same holy words. This is my body, but with the opposite blasphemous meaning. So Christ said, this is my body broken for you, take and eat in remembrance of me. And the culture of death says, we must break the bodies and shed the blood of babies for eternal life because this is my body, my choice. And the serpent told me in Genesis 3, ye shall be as gods. And a god gets to decide who lives and who dies. There's the inversion right? Same thing happens with transgenderism or the gay agenda. The rainbow, which was a sign of judgment for wicked immorality and perversions, becomes the symbol of today's wicked immorality and perversions. All Satan can do is invert, pervert, and copycat. So that's the first thing that you have to say about that. The second is this. There's an old heresy, and it's been declared a heresy by the church, <laughs> okay? It's called Gnostic dualism or body self-dualism. Body self-dualism. Okay, so it's actually quite simple. Listen, so there's a duality between the body and the self. In other words, you can have a human body, but that's not you, the person. So you may have a human body in the womb. It's obviously a human body. It's got, it's got human parents. It can't have any other body. So it's a human body, but they say what? It's not a person and it doesn't have any rights because it doesn't have certain 
cognitive abilities, functions, or capacities. So they end up grounding the real person in something other than the physical body. What does transgenderism say? That you may have a male genitalia, you may have a male body, but you can actually be a little girl inside. So the body means nothing, once again. The, the body is just a shell, they believe, that houses the real you. So there's this hatred of the body in, these, in this old heresy in the church called Gnostic dualism that thought that the body was evil and bad, and so we needed to liberate ourselves from the body, and, and the, the real person was passions, desires, thoughts, and consciousness. What do they say about abortion? The baby's not a person until they have thoughts, desires, and consciousness. Do you see? It's this hatred of the body, which is a hatred of God's creation because it's a proxy war against God himself. So that's the same worldview that undergirds the philosophy of transgenderism and abortion today. You, and it's a heresy because the church has recognized it's a spiritual you, you war. You said something when you were speaking, and I want to kind of um, frame this towards Frank, but he, he talked about um, what happens, you know, when, when men stand up, I think it was Jonathan, he, he talked about when the men say no more, or I'm here, or I'm covering you, I've got this, that 98% of the women, therefore, um, would, because they're, they're feeling protected, they're feeling safe, like, okay, you're going to be with me. What do you think is happening right now, Frank, when you're looking at our society? I mean, you, here you are, NFL guy, been in the NFL for all these years, and society is trying to make masculinity bad. It's calling it toxic. What do you feel, what are you seeing? Uh, you know, I know Panthers, your team, uh, I saw you mouthing off with them on social media. Thank you for that, by the way. What are, you, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I mean, when, when you start looking at, you know, what's going on, um, I was a little embarrassed, to be honest with you, that, you know, the organization that, you know, had stood so strong and was very conservative and, you know, team that I played for was kind of going down, you know, this path. And, you know, I, I love going to the games and I have three kids, you know, now that, you know, we talk about, you know, having a voice Who's speaking up for them? And I don't take my kids to drag shows or strip clubs or anything else like that, like Good. most parents wouldn't do. So when I'm coming to a game and this is presented to me, it's putting them in a position and me in a position to make a choice. And we all have a choice. And my choice was to say, you know, I'm not going to partake in that. Just I'm sure as a lot of people in this room would do. So. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to, to sit and back and watch. And, you know, Penny, I know that uh, you're, you've been a big voice, and Troy, you have as well. And you said this is, uh, you know, something that you need to do, and it is something I need to do because I need to stand up for my kids. And I think we all do as well because they're getting pulled in a direction right now with all these challenges with social media and, you know, this wokeness and the things that are taking place in their everyday lives that they're having to struggle against. And this is my opportunity to stand up for them. You know what I love, too? Isn't that great? Come on, give it up. That's so good. So good. The thing that, that, I, that I love about you, Frank, and other people that in the, the entertainment industry, the professional sports industry, is they're not afraid because there is a price to pay. Yeah. You're going to pay a price for doing what Frank's doing right now. And I think it's important that you need to understand you're going to have to pay a price, too. It's not just showing up on a Saturday fasting a meal on a Wednesday, 
No, people are going to challenge you. Yep. You know, they may not do it in your face, but now with social media, they're going to write stuff on your Facebook page. They're going to say stuff to you on Instagram. Yep. They're going to challenge you, and there is a price to pay. Yeah. And, I, you know, I'm proud of you, Frank, for, for, for standing up and making yeah. that stance. Um, and, and I want you to talk real quick on because of your career in the NFL, nine years, you're seeing not just the NFL but other sports speak out on social issues. I mean, uh, the coach for the, uh, the, the Golden State Warriors gets on. Right. He starts going off on gun violence. And the Giants. Look, I just want to watch a basketball game. Okay, I, I just want to watch a football game. How does that make you feel? I mean, like, you well, know, in, in your me, investment. Yeah, it's, it's upsetting to me, Troy, because only one side is being heard. Um, you know, I mean, you look at a guy like Tim Tebow who takes a knee and, and all of a sudden he wears John 316 on his, uh, you know, on his brow and the NFL decides to ban that. You're no longer allowed to do those things, but it's okay to kneel uh, because uh, you're protesting some political uh, stance. And, you know, Colin Kaepernick is you know, decided to do that, and a lot of guys fall, and the media jumps on that and, and pushes their agenda on us. And, yep. you know, the problem that I have with that is that the other side's not being heard. I mean, what's, why are one side's opinions and, and decisions greater than the other? And why am I being silent? So it's easy for me to stand up here, and, and the consequences, you know, I'll deal with. And because uh, there's I, I, consequences if you don't. Yeah, because the right. consequences if I don't are going to be greater than if I do. Yeah. And like as I said before, that's yeah, yeah. that's what's the easy part for me because yeah. I know that I'm I'm doing this for my children. I'm doing this for them. I'm doing this for the people that can't you know speak out or that are afraid to speak out. So if people if more people start speaking out, it becomes easier and easier for everybody to stand up and say, you know, I've had enough. And this was the, the last straw for me, you know, when it came to this, because I know I've, I have a lot of friends, female friends that were ex-cheerleaders, and they applaud, they say thank you. Thank you for speaking up for me, because if they speak up, they're canceled, they're pushed away, yeah. they're cast aside, they're no longer allowed to be a part of this. If, if that's what you want to do to me, <laughs> It's, it's an easy decision. Bye. You know, I, I love what you said about being canceled um, because I got a lot of, you know, current and former cheerleaders and judges who have said he, and I'm going to say he because he's a he, should never, he wasn't even any good. It was done to virtue signal. What do you think about all of the virtue signaling that is going on, and is it worth putting our careers on the line to speak up? Because I, I got the same thing you did. Everybody's inboxing, thank you, thank you, and I'm like, you're welcome, you're welcome, but I'm not just, my kids are grown and out of the house. I'm not speaking up about what's going on in our schools and all the things that are happening because of just my house. I'm speaking for everyone else's house. At what point do you feel like we should say, is my career worth this? Right, and that's, and that's the decision that everybody has to make. You know, I know it's a hard decision for some people. You know, for example, if you're a single mom and you're having to make a decision that I'm not gonna tolerate this and I'm gonna make a decision to, to move uh, and you know, do what I feel in my heart is right. 
And uh, it's, it's a lot harder for a person like that to make that decision because we still have a responsibility to our families to, to create money. Um, but do we want to be slaves to that? And that's, and that's the, the decision you have to make. And it's a tough one. And I'm not going to you know, pretend it's easy, but you know, for, for people that are just being pushed on us and things that are being pushed on us, you know, I obviously don't think it's right. I don't think it's fair. I don't think that there's a lot of people out there that have worked really hard to be in a position and they're getting you know, not an opportunity because somebody that's just being pushed in because of a political agenda is going to take their spot. And, and that's where you know, I have kind of drawn a line, not just you know, for my kids, but for the people that, that have a tougher time speaking up and uh, you know, maybe have more to lose in what they think you know, might be important to them. Can, can I piggyback on that before we go to yeah, Q&A? Yeah, really quick? yeah, go for it. So, because um, <clears throat> I, I, I just love what, everything that Frank said. I love how you're standing, brother. Um, and here's the thing, because cowardice is contagious, but so is courage. And, and haven't we seen that in the last two years? And Freedom House is an example of this. Pastor Jack Hibbs, my pastor, Rob McCoy, and others, many, many others that I could name, just I won't for the sake of time, opened their church in defiance of their governors early on, and it was a fragrant incense. It attracted people who weren't believers because there was nowhere else that was open where they could hug a person, look at them, and say hi. And they come to the Lord, and they get saved because of how, um, uh, how courage is also contagious. And so that's the importance of men standing. I just did an interview with my good friend David Benham of the Benham Brothers on my podcast He was yesterday. here last month, by the way. And you got to subscribe to his podcast, Living Among Lions. He's coming soon with the, uh, David and Jason, I think, on July 3rd. Yeah, he's going to preach House. Sunday. Yeah, yeah so, Sunday. Come, so come here, David. Precious friend of mine, I want to give credit to him. He just went theological, crazy application, cultural analysis on me in this podcast episode about the story of Lot. Remember Lot in Genesis? He was the Christian influencer of his day. He was at the city gates when people would come in. Yeah. He had position and authority. And when the angels come in and he takes them to his house, and people, it says from people from all parts of the city, so from every area of culture, they come to Lot's house. And what do they say? Bring them out that we might have sex with them. Yep. And Lot comes out and he says, brothers, don't do this wicked thing. So what does he do? He tries to relate to the secular culture. Hey, I'm a brother like you. But he does lob truth out there, doesn't he? He says, don't do this wicked thing. So he believed the truth, he spoke the truth, but he wouldn't stand for the truth. And he wouldn't lay down his life and die for the truth. And so what does he do? Do you remember? Here are my daughters, have sex with them. So his wife becomes in death what he should have been in life, a pillar of salt. He was saved, but he wasn't salty. He wasn't preserving anything that was righteous that mattered to God. So sure, you can be saved. But is that what you want? Do you want to be saved and not salty and let the culture burn down around you? Or as my pastor Rob McCoy says, wait downstream to pick up human heartache that you helped create through not contending for righteousness upstream? Wow. You're missing the greatest adventure, which is to be obedient, to stand in a day, and to watch how God uses you as a puppet when you simply stand. So this is the calling for the church right now. We got a lot of influencers. We got a lot of Christians with a position who have a place at the table. And they're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm just using strategy to be relevant for Jesus. Or as David Benham said, Jesus, I must increase, so you must increase. 
Oh, no, 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 that's not what John the Baptist prayed. I must decrease so you must increase. And when you get persecuted for standing for righteousness, you might decrease some. But he's going to become more beautiful, and the culture will be attracted to him because he's the way, the truth, and the life. And when you stand for truth, people see Christ. That's right. Yeah. That's good. That's really good. I think, so. I think decrease is another word for cancel. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's really good. So that leads us into our first question. So uh, I've heard you draw a really interesting dichotomy between this LGBTQ plus alphabet mafia agenda and uh, abortion. Can you draw that, draw that line for us so we can understand why those two actually are kind of the same battle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it, so it goes back to what I said about this old heresy called Gnostic dualism or body self-dualism. And so there were a bunch of Christians in the early church who said, like, we, we're so much spiritual. We're so much better than you we, because we don't want to be enslaved to passions and desires that the body has, whether it's sex or food or alcohol or whatever. So the body's bad. These desires we have are bad. So then they equated these sinful desires that we might have in our flesh with the body itself being bad. And so they came to believe that real people, the real person, was not your body. It was your thoughts, your aims, your consciousness, and your desires. And Christ says, hey, that's a heresy because Christ comes body and soul. He still has the holes in his wrists after he rises again to declare the yeah. truth that we are both body and soul. We're embodied human beings. And so this, this worldview is very strange. Here's why. If the real person is the thoughts, aims, consciousness, and desire, and not the body, then you've never hugged your mother because you can't hug thoughts, aims, consciousness, and desires, right? So the body means nothing. Oh, also, if psychologists try to cure multiple personality disorder, they would be guilty of mass homicide because each different personality would have different thoughts, aims, and desires. Do you see what a weird world this leads to? Yes, secular progressivism is la-la land because it's ultimately just spiritual principalities working within culture to deceive the sheep and kill more babies and move people away from the kingdom. So it's the same worldview, but Christ says, nope, we're embodied and sold. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. So this next question is for you, Frank. So you have had a lot of experience in the NFL, in these bigger pro-athlete fields. So why is it that so many people want to hear this leftist ideology in sports and they want to silence the right. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that it's, uh, it's just become the popular thing to do. Um, you know, and when you listen and follow versus lead, uh, it's going to be a lot easier to kind of fall into that same category. You talked about sheep you know, earlier, and I think uh, it's, it's, it's kind of become a, a trend. You know, nobody wants to step up. They just kind of follow. Um, you know, and it's interesting through COVID and all the things uh, in social media, you kind of figure out, you know, who yep. the people that yep. are going to kind of follow versus the ones that are going to lead and stand up and stand against. I mean, commitment is one thing, right? It's easy to be committed to something. It's hard to be convicted to something. And the people that are convicted are willing to die for what their beliefs are. And that's kind of, uh, you know, one of the big reasons, I think, that it's hard to be convicted. It's easy to be committed because commitment can change and it can, and can move you know, from side to side and, uh, and morph. And I think a lot of people, you know, think that they're committed and, and want to follow those things, but I don't think you find very few that are convicted in what they're believing. Yeah, that's really good. So, so what would you say to someone who is maybe afraid of losing a platform or losing influence or losing friends, what would you say to, to that person? I'd say you have to listen to your heart. I mean, I think that uh, you have to really dig deep to understand that uh, what you're going to do is uh, going to be you know, the, the, the ultimate judgment, right? And, and 
it's, it's not about the things. You know, as Schindler found out, it's about, you know, the, the, the life, the, the difference you make in, in people. And that's what we're all called to do. We're all called to make a difference. And it's not the things I have, the cars, the, it's the difference I make in the life of my child, right? That's ultimately what we have to look at as parents and, and friends. And he's made a big difference. You've made a big difference. You're making a big difference in a lot of people's lives. And I think that, you know, that's extremely important. And are you, are you convicted to that? That's really good. I love that. So next question. Um, you hear a lot in the, this one's for Seth, but in the uh, pro-life abortion sphere, you hear a lot about exceptions. So if, if Roe v. Wade falls, what about so-and-so? What about rape? Right, right, right. What about incest? So how do you, how can you empower people to combat those arguments? Yeah, amen, absolutely. So Planned Parenthood, their statistical research branch is named the Guttmacher Institute, named after Alan Guttmacher, a president of Planned Parenthood from the 70s, who wrote in his book, Life in the Making, on page three, that we all know when human life begins, once again. So it's named after him. Okay, the Guttmacher Institute reports that less than half of a percent of the annual abortions are performed on women who have been raped. Now, are all rapes reported? No, maybe the number's a little higher, but to expose the agenda behind this argument, simply ask the pro-choicer, if we set aside the one or half percent of abortions that occur in cases of rape very briefly, will you join me in fighting to end the 99% of all other abortions that aren't performed in cases of rape? They always say no. So then you can say, then why are you um, appealing to the exception to argue for the norm? Why are you hiding behind rape victims to make yourself sound more compassionate when you don't want abortion legal in the case of rape? You want it legal for any reason or no reason at all. And you're appealing to someone um, who has experienced great trauma to make me look like the moral monster because I don't believe that unborn children should be forced to suffer for the crimes of their father. Abortion is wrong for the same reason that rape is wrong. Rape is wrong because it intentionally harms and assaults an innocent human being with no justification whatsoever. Abortion is wrong because it intentionally assaults and harms an innocent human being with no justification whatsoever. Here are two pictures of babies conceived which one was conceived in rape and which one was conceived by loving parents? Oh, you can't tell me? Right, because we all know that they're human beings regardless. So that's the important point to make. Incest fits into that as well, of course. These are horrific, uh, horrific cases, by the way. But you want to know what? The pro-lifer wants more justice for that rape victim than the pro-choicer does, generally. And I'll prove it to you right now. Generally speaking, most pro-choicers who are for abortion also hate long prison sentences. The Democrat Party today is opposed to nearly any form of capital punishment or life in prison. They spring people from the clink all the time for horrific atrocities. So guess what? Hey, pro-choicer, I care more for the victims of rape because I want justice for the victims of rape. I would support castrations for rapists or life in prison. You don't. So who's really the person sowing compassion? and love for the victim of rape. The pro-life movement is. So that would be the answer. Yeah. So we're wow. gonna wrap up with just this um, last, last question. Thing. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that I wanted to uh, just bring up really quickly is I, I wanna talk about the, the battle between men and women that is going on right now. And yeah. you know, obviously what's happened with the Panthers and um, you see spots that women should be getting for scholarships or medals that women should be getting, but they're giving them to men, and so I got a question from a reporter, uh, and I wanted to just talk about this for a minute. Um, 
because Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson spoke at Freedom House a few weeks ago. Well, the, this reporter finally went and watched the message, and he decided that he was going to start his quotes and end his quotes and make it look like Mark Robinson was a misogynist. And what he said, and he, he reached out to me to appeal to me, and he said, it looks like Mark Robinson said in his message um, that men are the only ones that can be leading. And how does that feel to you, you know, knowing that you and your husband lead the church together, how must that feel to you knowing that, you know, basically you're being excluded and, you know, did this bother you? And initially I wasn't going to respond at all because I understand that reporters lie and they're looking for, I mean, he'd already lied this, this whole article. Um, so I responded back and I said, I am very offended. I would love to do an interview with you today. <laughs> He's so excited. So excited to do this interview today, but what he didn't realize is I had my camera crew there to make sure that nothing got, you know, edited or put on the, the cutting room floor. And he said, I'm so glad we're getting to talk. Um, you know, I know that you saw my article. And I said, ah, oh, thank you for wanting to interview me because you are sticking up for women. You are right. I'm so offended. What questions do you have for me? And he said, oh, let's just start with, you know, how, how that message that Mark Robinson, how did it land on you? Oh, my gosh. You're right. I am offended that Mark Robinson had to even say that at all because men have abdicated their positions. And now you see the women's lib movement rising up and they are competing with men. I mean, and, and here, here you have men pretending like they're women, like what just happened on the Panthers, the Top Cats. And because you reached out to me and you care so much about women, I want to spend some time talking about what's happening to the women and how our women are getting put down in society. And you see the guy's face <laughs> just like completely change. And so I said, let me tell you what is so wrong with America and what is so offensive <laughs> is the wussification of America is destroying us. And this dude is sitting there looking at me. And I... You just sucked him in. Me I just sucked, sucked him in. in. <laughs> but I recorded it because I know how they do. And so I think if, if we could understand, and I told him, I said, I have a shirt and it doesn't say the future is female. It says the future is male and female. And I said, when men and women come alongside each other, we have the same heart, the same purpose, and we're healthy, then we are not competing with each other. You're not trying to take my swim scholarship. You're not trying to take my medal. And you're not trying to wear a wig and a dress and call yourself something that you're not. And I'm not trying to act like you. And I said to him, I said, the women's lib movement is not honoring women. It's women trying to act like men. Right. So I've got four men up here. I would like to ask you guys the question, 
How do you think we get out of this where the men and the women are trying to compete with each other and and we're just not in a healthy place? How do we move the needle? Because I think it's it's so much what we heard earlier is if if the men stand up, maybe it just takes one man standing up and the women have had to be at the helm of the ship for so long, just maybe... We'll fall in line and yeah. honor and right. follow the leader. I would love to hear what you guys. Well, you know, it's interesting because we've got we've got a, a a Gen Z, right? Yep. We've got a Gen X and millennial. a millennial right there. Yep. I think we're kind of the same age. We're not going to say anything, but Frank, we're about the same age. So I'm going to let you answer. I look, I look for much me. younger. Have a look I'm much younger. You are longer. So so let's just start from the youngest and work our way up. And I'm going to let you answer for the, for the for the old guys. So. Uh, Here's my opinion. This isn't, so this isn't, this isn't going to be pop. This is probably not going to be popular. Don't, please don't email me. Uh, I think more guys need to go to the gym. More men need to... Come on. More men need to do hard things. Yep. We, we live in a society that's really easy. I can go on my phone, and within five minutes, I can order DoorDash. I can sign up for Netflix, which you shouldn't be doing. Um, I can pull up a movie, I can listen to music on Spotify, all within five minutes. It's so easy. Life is way too easy for the modern right. uh, American male. And so I think we need to learn how to do, do difficult things. Um, like life is not meant to just be a piece of cake and you know, walk in the park. We should be able to stand strong in our families, stand strong in our friend groups, stand strong at work. And that starts with the things we're doing at home. Mow your lawn. Like, like, I get, not everyone has time. Like, go do it. Like, pick up a hobby. Go do something. Like, get, get involved in CrossFit. Go, go to the gym. Go work out. Pick up a, an instrument and go play at, at your local restaurant or whatever. Like, do something difficult. So, that's what I would All say. All right, millennial. So good, man. That, no, it really is true because it grounds you in the natural world and it reminds you of your limitations. And if you have limitations and there's a natural world, that means someone that created it that way and there's objective standards, responsibilities, and duties you have simply because you're a man or a woman, you're a human being created in the image of God. The goal of secular, secular liberalism has always been to liberate ourselves, even from the constraints of human nature itself, to remake the world in our own image. And that's always been the attempt. So once again, it's a proxy war against God. Um, but I love what he said about physical activity. So I'll piggyback and I'll make this comment. Just as physical atrophy occurs through not using your muscles, so moral atrophy occurs through not using your voice. So what was the answer to Pastor Penny's question about what can men start doing? Simply act. Do something. Don't, you don't have to make sure that you're like a Ben Shapiro or a Michael Knowles or a Charlie Kirk. Just start acting. Start speaking truth, and you'll build up your moral fiber. These attacks against women, men, and children are really just an attack against the family, which is the institution ordained by God that reflects the fellowship and Trinitarian nature of God himself. And so redefining marriage, redefining family is once again our attempt to be as gods, to fulfill that lie from the serpent in Genesis 3 that says, do it my way, eat the apple, get woke, and ye shall be as gods. So this has always been the attempt. And I'll close with this, guys. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Abolition of Man. Okay, You should read it. Exactly. What is the abolition of man? It's men without chests. And what does C.S. Lewis explain? How does he explain this? He says, the head rules the belly through the chest. The head is the intellect, it's the rational man, it's what separates us from the animals. 
The belly is the raw animal, the appetite, the desire, sex, drugs, food, feed me, satisfy me, right? So intellect rules raw appetite through virtue, honor, and morality. That's the chest. So what's the abolition of man? Men without chests. So what does C.S. Lewis say? He says, such is the tragic comedy of our position. We continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and we, build, and we bid the geldings be fruitful. We've removed the very thing that keeps evil in check. Morality, wow. virtue, honor. Whose morality, virtue, and honor? What objective standard is out there that we're all beholden to? God himself. It's attack against God once again. You make men without chests, the head rules the belly with nothing to temper it in between. And are men and women really good at coming up with justifications in our mind to justify our sinful appetites and desires? Yeah, you remove the chest, you can justify anything you want to do. And so I'll finish with this. Abortion is the number one greatest example of the attack against masculinity because it tells men, you don't even have the right to defend your child. Brothers and sisters, I'm here tonight to tell you in America, if you impregnate a woman, whether she's your wife or not, you have zero legal rights to defend the life of that child. It doesn't matter if it's your wife, she can abort that baby through point of birth. If the culture can get men to abdicate and fold and be silent, even for the life of their own baby, there's nothing else they can't get you to tolerate and flinch on. Wow. It's the ultimate demasculinity and abolition of man. And wow. if they can pull that off, there's no end to their political Good. project. And that's wow. always been the wow. point. Yeah. All right, old man. <laughs> do it. Well, I tell you, as a younger, younger man, I used to care a lot more what people thought. And I would say for us as an older generation, how we start, stop caring so much about what other people think about us and Instagram and our stories and our, all the things that are things start living and doing and get those things away from you. And I think that, you know, we, as dads, we want to give our kids a little bit more than what we had. Is that a good thing or a bad thing, right? Make them earn it. Make them work hard. I coach high school football. Uh, we, anything worth doing is going to be a little hard. Don't be afraid to fail, right? We, we talk about failure a lot of times as a negative thing. It's a necessity for success. And we have to stop thinking and looking at that term as a failure. You know, we have to start, you know, as, as failure is a bad thing. We have to look at that as a good thing. And I think that if we can start doing a lot of those things, men will start leading in a stronger, more masculine way. That's great. Yep. Let, me, let me finish with this and then we'll just, we'll go home. Um, great book if you're a man, all right, which I see a lot of them here. And, which uh, I love. Which, right, that's what I love you guys being here, is Becoming a King. And I can't think of the, the author off the top of my head, but I, if you want to know who the author is, Becoming a King, phenomenal book. It's the 21st century Wild at Heart book, if you remember the Wild at Heart. I think it's better than Wild at Heart, personally. 
Have you read the book, Becoming a King? It's, uh, it's no, just a I've great book. It's I've, a phenomenal he's probably book. got it memorized. Yeah, it's a great book. And Morgan, Morgan Snyder. Let me add this, and then we'll, we're, we're done, is just to piggyback on the old guys. I think the greatest way for you to be a man is to help another guy become one. Amen. Amen. And so, That's because right. that puts a lot of responsibility on you. Yep. That means serving in your church, so being the husband that you need to be. And you know exactly what those, those answers are. Not abdicating your position, standing on the wall with your hammer and your sword in your hand, walking it out, living it out, putting yourself in positions where you are accountable to someone less than you. Listen, I'm a pastor. I'm tempted in a lot of areas. I have a few videos on my phone of guys who sent me saying, thank you for being an example to me. Those are the things that keep me out of trouble, is realizing that there are other guys that are dependent upon my testimony. And when you put yourself in that position, you say, well, I don't have kids anymore. Yes, you do. Look around. Anybody that's younger than you is a kid to you. You have a responsibility to invest in them. Um, I can't think of a better way for you to demonstrate your manhood Mm. than teaching someone else to be a man. That's right. Right? Amen. Hey, thank you so much, Seth. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. Frank, thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. Sweetheart, love you. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in for that excellent episode. I hope that fired you up. I got fired up being with such amazing men and women who care so much about living in the truth, speaking the truth, and contending against this culture of death and culture of lies. And there is this stirring happening in the church, almost like the early seeds of a revival, uh, as if awaking from a long spiritual coma of the church, recognizing the moment that the country and church is in, and the necessity of standing in this moment. So if this message encouraged you, would you subscribe to the podcast, leave a rating and review, subscribe on YouTube. If you want to follow me, you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, or Twitter. Twitter. And if you want to bring a message like this to your church or, or bring love life or turning point faith to your church, reach out to me, send me an email. We'll set it up and we'll start contending and training up people in your congregation and in your city to engage the culture of death. You can email me at seth at sethgruber.com. My calendar is almost full for the year, but we would love to partner together with you in this decisive moment. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted.